When I was in high school, I was coming back from a summer camp. Um, I was in, the camp was in Dallas, Texas, and I was driving back home to Hereford, Texas, where I grew up. And there are stretches on this trip from Dallas to Texas where you are in the middle of nowhere, where you can go miles and miles without seeing a gas station, a house, another car. And it was during this stretch of road where my car decided it didn't want to work anymore. So I'm 18 years old, and this was the time before there were cell phones. Uh, well, there were cell phones, they just weren't as, um, as adequate as they are now. And I am in the middle of the Texas summer abandoned by my car in the middle of nowhere. And I did at one point get out and open the hood and pretended like I knew what was under it and how to fix it, but that was all vanity. And so I just had to wait. I had no resources. I was utterly alone in the middle of nowhere and I just had to wait. There's nothing like the reality of waiting that exposes our own helplessness. I would imagine every single one of you here understands what it feels like in a season of waiting. We all wait. And there's nothing that exposes our own helplessness our own neediness than in those moments where we have to wait. And you all know this because you've, you've prayed to God. You've asked Him to help you in some kind of way. You've, you've cried out to Him. You've lamented to Him. And you have to wait. We wait for God to enact justice. Perhaps some of you here are waiting for that relationship to develop into a marriage. Or you're waiting for your spouse to come home, to work on your marriage. Or you're waiting for that covenant child to respond to their baptism in faith and to embrace Jesus and the gospel and the good news. See, every single one of us wait. And what it does is it exposes in us our own helplessness, our own neediness. In our passage, we've here at Christ Friends have been, been going through 1 Samuel, through the life of David, and we learn in this passage some very important lessons on what it means to wait upon the Lord. But before we consider it, let me pray and ask the Lord to help us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we know that your word is like fine gold. Your word is sweet like honey, even honey dripping from the comb. And so we pray that as we consider your precious word this afternoon, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be 
pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen. So David has been anointed as the king of Israel, but he has not yet been enthroned or installed as the new king. Ever since David killed Goliath, Saul, out of envy and rage, has been hunting him down, seeking to kill him. Saul has this thing against David, and he has been hunting him down, trying to kill him. David, as we read, and his men are hiding out in a cave in the region of En Gedi. And out of this passage, I, I want us to see three things as it relates to waiting. The first is the struggle. The struggle in our waiting. Secondly, what you actually discern in the midst of your waiting. And then finally, the assurance that we find in our waiting. So the struggle, what we discern, and then the assurance. First, the struggle of waiting. One of the things you need to remember is that David has been waiting for 10 years to be installed and enthroned as the new king of Israel. 10 years David has been waiting for God to fulfill his promise. 10 years he has been waiting for his enemy Saul to go away. 10 years David has been in this season of waiting. And there's a struggle here, and I want you to see two ways in which we struggle in the midst of our waiting. First, we struggle with our doubts, and then we struggle with what to do. First, we struggle with our doubts. Look at verse 2. We read that Saul took 3,000 men chosen out of all of Israel to hunt one man. 3,000 of the finest Israel had to offer in order to hunt one man, David, who he only has 300 men. David is overwhelmed. He's out-resourced. He's outmatched. He's exhausted, tired. He's hiding out in a cave. It appears in the midst of his circumstances that the enemy is actually winning. And that God is actually failing him. And what we find in this struggle with waiting is we begin to doubt. And we begin to struggle what to believe. And I know you know what it feels like to struggle in your doubts. You have this problem that you're waiting to be resolved. You have cried out to the Lord. You've asked him for help. And you are seeing that it's not going in the direction that you actually want. And so often what happens in these moments, in this season of waiting, is we begin to wonder why God seems so inactive. Why has he not inclined his ear to me? Why does he seem so absent, so distant, so far away? And so doubt begins to settle in our hearts. You begin to question his goodness. You begin to question his faithfulness. 
begin to wonder about his steadfast love. And this inevitably leads to the struggle of what do you actually do? Look at verses 3 and 5. Saul happens <laughs> to come into the very cave that David and his men are hiding out in. And the text tells us that Saul comes in to relieve himself. And that is just a nice translation to say that, that Saul literally went into the cave, disrobed himself, and went to the bathroom. And all of a sudden, David's men look at David and say, this is amazing. The Lord promised that he would deliver your enemy into our hands. And not only is Saul exposed and incredibly vulnerable, but he's going to do it in the most embarrassing of ways. The obvious solution is for David to get rid of this 10-year problem and kill Saul. He has the support of his men, and Saul, if he goes away, David's problem goes away, and then he's installed and enthroned as the new king of Israel. And here's the thing. Oftentimes, when we are in desperate situations, overwhelmed, in seasons of waiting, the obvious solution is most likely the most short-sighted solution. Because we can begin to justify our actions in all sorts of ways. In other words, in our waiting, we are tempted to take things into our own hands. And we will use all kinds of ways to justify that very thing. We all, we all do this. Short-sighted solutions to our fears, to our insecurities, to our desires, to our wants. So often in the season of waiting, the short-sighted solution looks like the most obvious. Think about it. Your spouse is cold and distant. There's very little affection between you two anymore, and all of a sudden there, there grows in your heart some some bitterness, some anger, some resentment, and you're not happy in your marriage. But there's this coworker, or this neighbor, or this friend who is very warm towards you, who's very kind, who laughs at your jokes. Who sees you and recognizes you and acknowledges you. And then all of a sudden you begin to think, well, you know what? God does want me to be happy. He doesn't want me in a miserable marriage, right? Well, I'm supposed to love others and I'm supposed to love myself. And then all of a sudden you see how the short-sighted solution becomes the obvious one. And here's the thing, we all do this with our fears, with our insecurities, with our desires, with our wants. So what happened with David? In verses 4 and 7, he cuts off a piece of Saul's robe and the text tells us 
that his heart struck him. Literally, it says his heart smote him. Why? Conviction. David's men actually misled him. God never promised that he would deliver David's enemy into his hand. What he actually promised is that he would be faithful to install him as the new king of Israel. Saul was the anointed king. And for David to assault or kill the anointed one, it would be as if he was going to assault the Lord himself. It was a breach against God. And David knew better. So in seasons of, of waiting, we struggle with doubt, with what God is doing or not doing, and we struggle with what to do ourselves. Yet in these moments, you actually see that God is at work. David teaches us true discernment in our season of waiting. So secondly, I want you to see what you discern while you wait. Verses 8 to 15, David waits for Saul, and then he addresses him. And it's a fascinating dialogue when Saul actually leaves the cave, and David stands up and begins to address the whole episode. A couple of things I want you to see that I think David discerns here that is extremely helpful for us in seasons of waiting. The first, you discern that waiting on the Lord it's not passive. Waiting on the Lord is not passive. This 10-year problem in David's life has not been his fault. Look again at verse 11. David says, There is no wrong or reason or treason in my hands, for I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life and take it. Living in a world that is fallen and sinful doesn't mean you are necessarily guilty. place that you find yourself in in a season of waiting. David is innocent. He's done nothing to deserve the treatment from Saul. You know, Saul, out of his envy and out of his rage and out of his own pride and insecurity is the root cause for David's situation. I mean, Saul used his own daughters as a trap to hunt David. He killed a priest that actually helped David. He levied taxes on Israel so that he could actually have the resources to raise this enormous army to hunt one man. And in 1 Samuel, you learn that it actually put Israel in despair and some people into great debt because of Saul's own envy and insecurity and rage. And so David comes and he pleads his innocence. He's discerned that during this season of waiting, it's not his fault. And some of you this afternoon need to hear this. I want to be very careful. But if you've ever been abused, whether verbally, emotionally, physically, ever been assaulted or harassed, it's not your fault. 
See, waiting on God is not passive. David waits on the Lord, and yet he still confronts Saul. David allows Saul to get a safe distance from himself, and then he pleads his case. He says, I had the chance to kill you, and I didn't, because you are the Lord's anointed. I could have done it. There is nothing in my hands that is wrong. Sometimes you have to separate yourself from dangerous situations, whether it's a toxic family situation, an abusive spouse. David is actually showing us it is right to defend your innocence and separate yourself. Waiting is not passive. But the other thing that David discerns is that waiting is also transformational. Verses 12 and verses 15, we find where David's true heart really is. He has committed his cause to the Lord. David, during this 10-year waiting period, is being transformed into the king that Israel needs. David is becoming more dependent upon God. David is beginning to trust God more. And it's actually transforming him. He knows that the Lord is actually going to bring justice. He knows he's actually going to bring greater justice than what he could have brought. And so he gains confidence in what God is actually doing. So during seasons of waiting, so often the Lord is refining us, beautifying us, making us more dependent on himself. One commentator said that God is actually crafting David like a father raising a son to be a king by taking him through difficult and hard things. So often this is what happens in seasons of intense waiting. We're being transformed. And there's a great picture of this in the children's book, The Velveteen Rabbit. Some of you may be familiar with this. There's a, the rabbit has a, a conversation with the uh, old shabby skin horse. Here's how the conversation goes. Real isn't how you were made, said the skin horse. It's a thing that happens to you. You see, when a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with you, but really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt? Asked the rabbit. Sometimes, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. When you are real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once? Or like being wound up or bit by bit? It doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You become. It takes a long time. That's why it doesn't happen often to people who break easily or who have sharp edges or who have to be very carefully kept. Generally, by the time you're real, most of your hair has been loved off, your eyes drop out, and you get loose in the joints and are very shabby. But these things don't matter at all because once you are real, you can't be ugly except to people who don't understand. I suppose you are real, said the rabbit. And then he wished he had not said it, for he thought the skin horse might be sensitive. 
skin horse only smiled. The boy's uncle made me real. He said, that was a great many years ago. But once you are real, you can't become unreal. It lasts for always. The rabbit sighed. He thought it would be a long time before this magic called real would happen to him. He longed to become real, to know what it felt like. And yet the idea of growing shabby and losing his eyes and whiskers was rather sad. He wished they would, that he could become it without these uncomfortable things happening to him. Waiting on the Lord is uncomfortable. But it's in these moments and seasons where the Lord is actually transforming you into this magic called real. So how can you learn then in the midst of your waiting to trust him? To actually depend upon him? This leads me lastly to the assurance that you find in the midst of your waiting. David wrote two psalms, Psalm 57 and Psalm 142, um, that are known as the cave psalms. Now, we don't know which psalm corresponds to which cave episode, but what's so fascinating when you look at Psalm 57 and Psalm 142 is this theme that God is his refuge. Now, that is a very old word in Israel's history. A refuge in Israel's history was really a sanctuary city where someone who accidentally committed murder could actually flee to one of these refuge, to one of these sanctuary cities um, as, as a refuge. And David in the cave is now taking this idea of a sanctuary city And he's applying it directly to God himself, saying that God has actually become the assurance of his security. That God has actually become his refuge. Listen to how Psalm 57 puts it. He says, be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. For God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. God, as his refuge, became a place where David began to encounter in unbelievable ways God's covenantal love. His committed love. His faithfulness. How can you right now encounter God as a refuge and be assured of his steadfast love? Well, in verses 16 to 22, the end of the story, we have a very interesting exchange where Saul begs David to make a covenant with him. He, he promises, he says to David, promise me that you will not cut me or my descendants off from you. David, who is innocent, makes a covenant with his enemy. Now, he'd already made this covenant with Jonathan a few chapters earlier. And he reaffirms it with Saul here in, Psalm, in, in 1 Samuel 24. Now, I want you to understand this, that David, who is innocent, 
makes a covenant with his enemy not to cut him or his family off from his line. This is remarkable. The way that you know God's assurance and mercy and steadfast love and faithfulness in the midst of your waiting is because David's greater son, the definitive king, the definitive anointed of the Lord, Jesus Christ made a same covenant with you and to me that Jesus would not cut us off from his love for those who have sinned and rebelled against him, but rather he would be cut off from the assurance of his father's pleasure so that you and me would always know his steadfast love and faithfulness, that we would always know that the way in which God deals with us in our seasons of waiting that he deals with us as a father does. That you can know right now the assurance of his steadfast love as he is transforming you and beautifying you. God as a refuge is not some abstract concept. No, it is God himself in the person of his son. Lord Jesus. This is the assurance that we discover in the midst of our waiting. That he sends out his steadfast love and faithfulness. This is what David discovered. So the struggle, what he discerned, the assurance. Let me close with this. I don't know if you're familiar with another children's book. The moon is always round. It's a true story about a family named Jonathan and Jackie Gibson. And they had a son named Benjamin. And at night, Jonathan and his three-year-old son Benjamin would stand at the window and they'd look out at the moon. And he would ask his son Benjamin, he's like, what shape is the moon? And it would be like a crescent or half or a full and, um, and then Jonathan would say, well, what shape is the moon always? And Benjamin would say, the moon is always round. And so Jonathan actually developed a little catechism um, for his son, Benjamin. And it goes like this. He would say, Ben, what shape is the moon tonight? The moon is crescent. What shape is the moon always? The moon is always round. And what does that mean? God is always good. On March 13th, 2016, Benjamin's younger sister, Layla Judith Grace, died at 39 weeks in her mother's womb. Benjamin got to go over to the hospital, gave his baby sister a little giraffe, got to hold her, and then said goodbye to her. And later that night, Jonathan uh, drove Benjamin home. And in the car, Benjamin was asking all sorts of questions about why and how, what do we do? And Jonathan recalled 
this little catechism, and he said, Ben, what shape is the moon? always good. A couple days later at the funeral and at the funeral Jonathan actually gave the eulogy and at the end of the eulogy he actually addresses Ben. He says Ben when you grow up you're going to go through seasons it's going to be difficult periods where you're going to question and you're going to have these moments where you doubt. He says, I want you to remember what shape is the moon? He says, the moon is always round. He says, what does that mean? one thought. That in the season of waiting where you are wondering where God is or what he's up to, just like the moon can take many different shapes, whether it's crescent or half or sometimes it's completely veiled. You can know like David that God is always good and he sends out his steadfast love and faithfulness always. Chris David says, from a cave, for your steadfast love is great as the heavens, and your faithfulness to the clouds. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we know that all of us come to this place um, with all kinds of fears and insecurities and doubts and struggles. Perhaps many of us are in a season of waiting, waiting on you to answer the cries of our hearts. And so I pray for my friends here that they may, like David, commit their cause to you. And in whatever place they find themselves in, may they see you and know you as their refuge, the one who sends out your steadfast love and faithfulness. So Jesus, would you be so kind to do that for us? We pray this in your name. Amen.